0: From the Hutterberg Catechism, we read together, Lord's Day 23. Title above this Lord's Day is, Our Justification. But what does it help you now that you believe all this, all that we've confessed in the 12 articles of our faith in Christ, I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I myself had never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Why do you say that you're righteous only by faith? not that I'm acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith. For only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith only. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever noticed how hard we work at getting another person's approval? People have an instinctive desire within them to have others look upon them favorably. A child wants the approval of his mom and dad. Most people are quite concerned about how their f- friends think about them. An employee will work hard to gain his employer's appreciation. Appreciation. There's times when we go to incredible lengths to get the affirmation of others. We'll give in to peer pressure and do what others think is cool, just to fit in. We devote time, we give presents, or do whatever we think it takes to get someone we respect or admire to accept us. In the same way, people have an instinctive desire for approval from God. God. God has made us religious beings. We were made to worship. Every single group of people on this earth is religious in some way. Either consciously or subconsciously, every human being is seeking the approval of God. God has put eternity into our hearts. But people often get diverted from worshipping Him. They serve created things... Instead of the Creator. Yet the fact that we were made, that we make various things into gods, shows our religious nature. It shows our need to worship. At root, we are dependent beings who seek validation, acceptance, or approval from God. The central question every religion in this world is attempting to answer is. How do we find God's approval? How do we come into the right relationship with God? Buddhism teaches the need to follow an eight-step pathway to reach nirvana, the state of bliss. Islam has developed Shiara law, a fixed code of behavior all Muslims are to follow. Judaism teaches the need to live according to the law of Moses. Roman Catholics believe that through prayer and good deeds they can contribute to their salvation. The thing that they all have in common is that these are all duty religions. You must do such and such and live in this and that way in order to be saved. Yet the Christian faith is different. No matter how much we try, we can do nothing to make ourselves right with God again. Any attempt to earn or merit God's approval by good works is an attack on the gospel of grace. The Bible points to Jesus Christ and him crucified. It points to the wondrous redemption Christ has earned for all who believe in him. It teaches us to find God's approval not in what we do, but but in what Christ has done for us. We can make Christ and all his blessings our own by faith alone. I preach you the word of God under the following theme. God declares us sinful people righteous through Christ alone. To be declared righteous, we need to have a broken and contrite heart to share in God's grace in Jesus Christ, and to make this our own by true faith. In our catechism preaching, we've spent the past months discussing the 12 articles of the Christian faith, also known as the Apostles' Creed. We've learned about God the Father in our creation, God the Son in our redemption, and God the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. Lord's Day 23 sums it all up by asking... But what does it help now that you believe all this? Is there any benefit to knowing God? What really does your faith do for you? Our catechism answers this question in a simple but profound way. It says, in Christ I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting In other words, there is great benefit to knowing God, to believing what he teaches in his word. Believing in the good news of salvation has great effect. By faith, we're made right with God. We're restored to fellowship with him. The result is we have life, not just now, but also eternally. We may share in the joy of belonging to Christ. We have confidence that our life with God will continue into eternity. Our catechism goes on to ask another question, a key question, a question that stands at the heart of the Reformed faith. It asks, how are you righteous before God? By nature, we're all sinful people. In our thoughts and attitudes, our words and deeds, we sin against God all the time. And through our sins, we incur guilt. When you do something wrong, you deserve to be punished for it. And thus, in and of ourselves, we are not right before God. What our catechism is asking is, how can we be made right with God? What's required for us to be restored in the right relationship with Him? How can we escape his wrath against our sins and be restored to his favor? That's what we hope to focus on this afternoon. One of the greatest obstacles to people being declared righteous by God is that they think they don't need this. Many people in the world are not conscious of the fact that they are sinners. They think that in and of themselves they're pretty good people. People will admit that They've done some things wrong. Some things they're not proud of. Things they'd rather not have repeated in public. But no one's perfect, you know. And besides that, they consider that if you evaluate the whole of their life, they've done more good than bad. And so, because they do not recognize their sins, they don't seek to be saved from them either. This type of thinking is not limited to the people of the world. God's own people often thought the same thing. We see this from our scripture reading. We read from Luke 7 about how Jesus went to Simon the Pharisee's house to share a meal with him. While Jesus was reclining at table, a woman who had lived a sinful life came in. She stood behind him weeping and wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them and she poured fragrant oil over them. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus to dinner saw all this, he was indignant. He thought to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. Our Lord knows Simon's thoughts. He tells Simon a story to explain to him the difference between him and this sinful woman. Jesus speaks about a moneylender who had two people who owed him a debt. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. A denarius was what a laborer would earn as wages for a day. Now, when they had nothing with which to repay, he canceled the debts of both. Jesus asked Simon a question, which of them do you think will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus told him he had answered correctly. And then on the basis of this story, Jesus contrasts the difference between Simon and this sinful woman. Jesus points out that while Simon had not even provided water for him to wash his feet, a basic courtesy, the sinful woman has washed his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. While Simon gave him no kiss, a sign of welcome, this woman has not stopped kissing his feet since the time she came into the house. Simon had not poured any oil on his head, but the woman had poured fragrant oil on his feet. The bottom line is is that while Simon wasn't much of a host to the Lord Jesus, this woman that he looks down on has shown forth her love for Jesus in a very special way. The question is why? Jesus explains. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. The difference between the Pharisee Simon and the sinful woman are that he did not acknowledge that he was a sinner while she clearly did. It's true. The Pharisee, Simon had not sinned as much as this woman had. Her debt was far greater than his. But at least she recognized it, and she went looking for someone to save her from her sins. Simon's problem was that he thought he was righteous in himself. And so he did not look elsewhere for salvation from his sins. At one time, Paul, formerly known as Saul, was also a Pharisee. He had the same attitude as Simon. He thought he could earn his own righteousness before God. Paul explains why for much of his life he had put his confidence in his own flesh. He details the reasons for such confidence in Philippians 3. He explains, He was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul thought he could live according to the law of God. And because of his zeal for God and his obedience to the law, he was righteous before God. Both Simon and Paul needed to be humbled. And Jesus worked in both of their lives. In Simon's life, he pointed out that despite his best works, he was still a debtor. He still owed the moneylender 50 denarii. At the end of his story, Jesus forgave the woman her sins, but he did not forgive Simon. Simon. The woman grieved over her sins. She had a humble and a contrite heart. But Simon did not. He still had not come to terms with the fact he was a sinner. The fact that Jesus did not forget Simon was a silent rebuke. He needed to humble himself and to confess his sins before he could be forgiven. Paul too at one time was an arrogant man he thought that by his own good works he could merit his salvation his whole life was focused on keeping the law his zeal for god was so great that when the christian faith was established paul was involved in trying to stamp out those people who followed jesus he was there at stephen's stoning he uttered murderous threats against the lord's disciples He asked the high priest for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so if he found any Christians there, he could arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem as prisoners. And yet along the road to Damascus, the Lord Jesus appeared to Paul. A bright light from heaven flashed around him, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul was struck with blindness for three days. And during that time, the Lord humbled him. He convicted him of his sins. He turned his heart. So he became a follower of Jesus. And then Jesus appointed him to serve as apostle to the Gentiles. Through the incident on the road to Damascus, Paul's life was turned upside down and inside out. Paul came to the realization he was not the perfect man that he thought he was. It led him to confess his sins. In 1 Timothy 1.15, he calls himself the worst of all sinners. In Romans 7, Paul speaks about his ongoing battle with sin. He says, "...for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh." For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Each of us, beloved, needs to come to the point in life where we recognize we're sinful people. Now, to help us with that, God has given us a conscience. It's a self-observing, self-judging capacity that helps us evaluate our actions, our words, our thoughts, and feelings. It's like an inner voice that speaks up, telling us the difference between right and wrong. Our conscience will often warn us not to do something because we know it is wrong. At times, it'll also accuse us when we have done wrong, giving us an uncomfortable, a guilty feeling. Now, please understand that our conscience is not a perfect guide, Often our conscience is shaped by the society in which we live. It may not speak out against sins that society deems to be a normal way of life. Our conscience is only reliable to the extent that it's shaped and molded by the word of God. There are times when we can put our conscience to sleep. We push away that nagging thought that what we're doing is wrong. We try to silence the inner voice so we can continue doing what we want instead of obeying God's holy commands. If we repeatedly sin in a specific way, it's possible for us to sear our conscience by stifling its warnings. We can reach a point where our conscience no longer bothers us about a particular sin. Beloved, may we never silence our conscience. If we want to experience life with God, to live in close fellowship with Him, we need to recognize our sins and to repent from them. We need to do away with all self-righteousness, thinking we're pretty good people, or that we can make up for our sinful deeds through our own efforts. Each of us personally needs to admit, I have grievously sinned, against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil. You see, beloved, before we can be declared righteous before God, we need to have a broken and contrite heart. Like David, we need to learn to confess For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what's evil in your sight. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Like Paul, we need to recognize that despite our best efforts, we don't do the good we want to do, but the evil we don't want to do. It's only with a humble and contrite heart. That we can ever receive God's grace. We deal with this in our second point. We'll see that to be declared righteous, we need to share in God's grace in Jesus Christ. The basic question that faces us is, how can things be made right between God and us? As sinful people, how can we be restored to God's favor? These questions bring us to the heart of the Reformed faith. Our Catechism teaches us that it is in Christ, that we can be made righteous before God. The righteousness I have before God is not my own. It's not something I've earned, that I've accomplished through my own good deeds. It is a gift of grace. To understand how we are justified or declared righteous before God, we can use the example of a courtroom Courtroom has a number of central participants, a judge, the accused, the defense lawyer. The accused has to appear before the judge because he's been charged with some crime. The defense attorney argues his case, trying to get him off the hook. And in the end, the judge renders a verdict, either guilty or not guilty. The result is that the accused person is either punished for his crime or he's set free. The reason that all this applies to us is that we all will have to appear before the judge of heaven and earth. We'll appear as people being charged with wrongdoing. Charged with an innumerable number of transgressions and shortcomings. Yet, beloved, we don't have to appear before God on our own. A defense lawyer represents us. He pleads our cause for us. He doesn't say that we never did any of these things wrong. But that all our sins have been paid for by his blood. And as a result of Christ's mediation, God declares us not guilty of our sins. Thus we see what justification is. It is to be declared righteous before the throne of God. What we need to hear is that the judge of heaven and earth declares us not guilty of all our sins and shortcomings. How could that ever happen? Beloved God declares us sinful people righteous through Christ alone. Paul writes in Romans 3 that a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known. He says that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that there is in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 2, Paul declares, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. It's only by God's grace in Christ that we are declared righteous Before God. You see, beloved, Christ has accomplished our salvation for us. He came into this world as a sinless person, He lived a perfect life. He presented Himself before God as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus went the way of the cross, rejected by men, suffering great agony and shame. By doing so, Christ bore the wrath of God against our sins. With his body and blood, he has paid the price for our sins so that God could declare us righteous and holy in him. Our catechism gives us a rich perspective on who we are in Christ. It says that God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, Imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Know carefully that God credits us with the perfect satisfaction, the righteousness, and the holiness of Christ. In other words, Christ's payment is mine. Christ's righteousness, his uprightness, is mine. His holiness, his sinlessness, is mine. How is that possible? Our catechism explains, God grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. The point, beloved, is this. God looks at us through the blood of Jesus Christ. Our salvation is by grace alone. It's a gift given to us because of what Christ has done for us. 1 Peter 1, 3.18 1 says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. From Luke 7, we read the story about the sinful woman who came to Jesus while he was reclining at supper in Simon's house. She had a humble and contrite heart. Through her actions, she showed that she depended on Christ and on God's grace in him for her salvation. The Lord did not disappoint her. Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Many did not yet understand that Jesus was, was the Messiah, sent from God to redeem us from our sins. But the sinful woman knew, and she went home justified. Like the woman who visited Jesus at Simon's house, we need to seek our righteousness in Christ alone. There's still one question that remains. How can we share in God's grace in Jesus Christ? We deal with this in our final point, And we'll see how we need to make this our own by true faith. The Bible makes it clear that not all people are saved. There are many who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. There are many who, having heard the good news of salvation, reject it. There are many who think they need to earn their own salvation, or at least in some way contribute to it. So how can we make God's grace in Christ our own? Only by believing in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. Our justification is by faith alone. Jesus made this clear to the woman who came to see him at Simon's house. Seeing her humble and contrite heart, Jesus forgave her sins. He said to her, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This woman believed that Jesus was Messiah sent from God. She considered him able to restore her in the right relationship with God by atoning for her sins. It's because she believed that she was restored to communion with God. Jesus indicates this by saying, go in peace. Peace comes from being reconciled with God. It's the result when God is no no longer angry with you because of your sins. It comes when we're declared righteous through Christ alone. In his life, the Apostle Paul also came to the realization that the only way to Sharing God's righteousness is by faith in Jesus Christ it becomes one of the central points that, call, that Paul communicates in his letters to the churches. In Romans 1:17, Paul says, "For the gospel, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, "The righteous shall live by faith." In Romans three verse28 which we read together, Paul concludes, For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. So we see that faith is the means by which we may share in Christ and in his righteousness. Beloved, every week you hear the glad tidings of salvation proclaimed to you. You know the basic message of the gospel That Jesus Christ suffered and died on the cross to pay for your sins. That he rose from the dead, so you can share in the new life he gives. The question is, do you believe this? Do you come before God with a humble and contrite heart, confessing your sins, acknowledging your guilt, Do you seek your life outside of yourself in Jesus Christ and Him crucified? See, beloved, knowing the message of salvation will not save you. You need to believe it. To be convinced that it is by Christ, by Christ alone, that God declares you righteous before Him. There's only one way to be saved. When God declares us sinful people righteous through Christ alone, it's a liberating experience. For when we share in God's grace by faith, we are set free from bondage of sin and guilt We began this sermon by speaking about how we often work hard to try and get other people's approval. We saw how many in this world, and even in Christ's church, try to get God's approval through their own human efforts. Yet there's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. Only Jesus Christ can atone for our sins. And when he does... He gives peace. He restores us to fellowship with God. Beloved, believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Be assured that through Christ's saving work, you have been made right with God. That you may go forth into this new week, experiencing the peace that comes from God. Amen.